Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to teach from your word. We ask you to guide and lead as, as we study. Let those who listen to this get information out of it that is useful for their life. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they agree? Will a lion roar in the forest Will he, when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of the of his den if he hath nothing, taken nothing? Can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where, where no gin is set for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have not, taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, and who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So we look at these verses, and Amos is really working on trying to get the word out to people. And he says, hear the Lord, what the Lord has spoken. And this word for hear is to hear and obey. And he says, the Lord has spoken to the children of Israel against the whole family which the Lord has brought up out of Egypt. And here he's recalling back to them the idea that Israel, you are special. God rescued you from Egypt. He has placed himself upon you. And then it says in verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, while I punish you for all your iniquities. And here we have an interesting statement. You know, he says, I have known you. How did he know him? He gave him the law. He gave him special, special privileges. He, got the, he says, I'm going to make my temple in you, with you. He chose Israel to be his bride. And he said, I have known you, and therefore he will punish you. And this is the idea that when we get given information, we get given knowledge, we are accountable for that knowledge. Israel had great knowledge, and they were accountable for it, and they didn't obey. And over those years, they had drifted off into idolatry over and over and over again. And God said, now you will be punished for all your iniquities. And God says that to us. We get knowledge from our study. We get knowledge from the word. We get knowledge from being taught. And God holds us accountable for the knowledge that we are learning. And when we learn from things, and this is what we see as we grow in Christ, we become more mature with God. And all of a sudden, things that we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore because God says, you have deeper knowledge. You have understanding. These are not fun and game times. These are not times for you just to, to play at learning. God wants us to learn and to apply what we learn. And verse 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And this literally means to have union in, in agreement. And God says, I want to walk with you. Reminiscent of the Genesis when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the night. And God says, we can walk together, but you need to agree. And we need to agree with him. We need to learn to walk with him. Then he goes into a whole another set of things. He says, 
Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den when he has taken nothing? Well, I was interested in figuring out what this is talking about, so I did some research, and it comes to find out that lions roar to warn that you're in their area, and to also, when they're in the hunt, they have a roar to help them find each other. And so it says, a lion, will a lion roar in a front in a forest when he's pre no prey? If he's not hunting, will he roar? And apparently Amos had experience with lion. Remember, Amos is a herdsman. He has been taking care of sheep. He has probably heard the lions out in the, in the fields as he was worrying about them taking his lambs. And he says, will a young lion cry out of his den if he has not taken anything? And the answers on this is, as far as he's concerned, is no, they won't. And he says, then he says, can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no gin is set for him? And again is the bait or lure or the snare. We've talked about this at other times. He goes, a lion, the bird will not get snared if there's no bait in the snare for him to be taken in. And, you know, we try that. If you've ever tried to catch a bird, you know, even a tame bird, it's hard to catch a tame bird, but try to catch a wild bird, and it's almost impossible without some kind of trap, without some kind of net to catch him with. And then he makes a third example here. He says, shall a trumpet be blown in a city and the people not be afraid? And this is the idea that in a city, when they, when they saw the enemy, the trumpet would sound and people would know that the enemy was on there. Even if it was a call to arms, the people would know something was happening and there would be fear in the city. And it, then it goes on to say, shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it. And this word for evil is distress and adversity. And God brings distress and adversity on those that are disobedient. If we're not at peace with him, if we're not following him with care, God will bring judgment. And we need to be able to understand this judgment that God brings on, he causes commotion to try to get people to come to him and come into agreement with him. We had communion this morning, and the whole idea of communion is that we remember what God has done. We remember the sacrifice that he has made for us. He took the punishment upon that we deserve upon his body, and he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And by doing these things, we can come into agreement with God. And this is really important because God desires us to be at one with him, to agree with him, to, to walk together in that agreement, to be assembled by an appointment, literally. And it says that God wants that. And it says, surely the God will do, the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servant. And this word for nothing is to speak. Surely God will not speak, but he you know, will, not, will speak nothing, but he will reveal his secrets. He will uncover his secrets unto his servants. And this is what God has done through his word. His word clearly teaches us what he desires. His word teaches us how we're to live. His word teaches us what he expects. We do not have to guess at what God expects. We do not have to guess at what God wants. We get into his word, we study, we follow his word, and we exult in him. 
And he says that he holds us then accountable for it. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by getting into his word and seeing what does God expect. And we grow in that training. We grow in that knowledge. And we see that God expects us to be obedient. And then surely God will do nothing without revealing it to his servants. And this is wonderful. He reveals his statements. The lion has roared. Who will, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, but who can prophesy? When the lions roar, people would fear, especially out in the wilderness. But you know, can you imagine being around a lion, not behind a cage, not knowing what's going on? And especially if another lion re- responds back. And this is the idea that it has. The lion you know, has roared, and it's just like God. He has spoken. And who's going, to give, who's going to be his prophet? Verse 9. Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palace of the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourself into the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults of the midst thereof and the oppression in the midst thereof. For they, knew, for they know not to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even around about the land, and he shall bring down your strength upon you, and the palaces shall be destroyed. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out of the that dwell in, the, in Samaria, in the corner of the bed and in Damascus in the couch. Hear you and testify in the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I shall also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground, and I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end. So here we see God speaking a, a judgment upon Samaria, northern, the northern kingdom, Samaria. And he says here, publish or proshout or proclaim in the palaces of Ashkenaz, God and in the palace in the land of Egypt. And this is kind of interesting. He's saying, go to the enemies of Israel and shout this. Ashdod, the, one of the capital cities in Philistines, of the Philistines, and then in Egypt. He says, in these places, publish to them that judgment is falling upon Israel. And this is something that's kind of harsh sometimes. When, when God says we're supposed to be a light to the world, a shining example to the world, we're to light up the world, and yet when we fail, God will shine that light upon us. And because God is not worried about our feelings, about our desires. He's worried about his glory. When we fail to live up, he will make sure that that's a bright light And we see this all through the scriptures. When David fails, it is shouted. When we see these other people fail in the scriptures, it is shouted. Balaam failed, and it it was shouted out. 
We see it even in our day that some of these televangelists who have failed, who, who make this pose that they're for God and they then go into sin and God says, let me show you that sin is judged. And he shows the world that sin is judged. I think he's trying to make sure that people understand that he is righteous, he is holy, and his people are supposed to be righteous and holy. So often we take grace as a license to sin to say, God, oh, I know you say that you've got rules, you want us to follow these things, but you know, you're just going to give me grace and mercy and we just stomp all over his blood. And that is not a good thing. And God will lift that up and he will make an example out of us to say, I am holy, I am righteous. Grace is great. When we fail, God gives us grace. But we've always said this, there's consequence to our sin. When we fail, there is a consequence to that sin. God's grace forgives us. His mercy doesn't give us everything we deserve, but there's consequence for sin. Over and over again, there's consequence for sin. And Samaria is going to see the sin, and God's telling his, Samaria's enemies, Come and see. Come to the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumult in the midst thereof and the, oppress, and the oppression of in the midst thereof. God is saying they have caused problems. The, the tumult, the violence, and all of this that, that Samaria was causing, and then God brings violence upon them. Syria, uh, Samaria was going to be taken out by the Syrian, uh, Syrian Empire and was going to be taken captive because of their sin. When the northern kingdom broke away from the, from the southern kingdom all the way back in, after Solomon's day, then the very first thing they did was start worshiping golden calves. And they put the golden calf in Bethel, and they put the golden calf in, in Dan, and the people were to worship. Why did they do that? Because they were afraid if people went to Jerusalem, eventually the nation would be reunified again. And the king said, we don't want that. So he established the golden calf worship and set the nation on the wrong direction from the very beginning. They worshipped golden calves and they worshipped every other idol over the, over the time. The northern kingdom never had a good righteous king. And God finally says, I'm tired of this. I'm going to bring judgment. You know better. You have rejected my word. You have rejected my truth. And I'm going to bring judgment. For those who try to claim to be Christians, and I'm not saying they're all not Christians, but then if they don't want to live according to God's words, God will bring judgment because they know better, especially if they are his. They know better or at least should have known better if they had been following God and getting into his word. They know that they are saved by grace. They know that it's God's mercy and they know that they should not be using grace as a license to sin. And yet they do, and God will bring judgment upon them. And it's really sad to watch people who say they're Christians not live in righteousness, not live according to the Bible, not live according to any part of the Bible. They, they go, they'll, they'll say things like, well, you just got to put up with me. You've just got to gotta give me grace, and, you know, and I'm just who I am. And God's saying, no, you're to grow. If we are not growing, we really need to look at our life and say, am I his child? And that's tough to do. 
Because Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they list off all these wonderful things that they, you know, as, you know, didn't I go visit the sick? Didn't I feed the hungry? Didn't I clothe the naked? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, how many people say they're Christians and aren't? How many people say they're Christians and are? We don't know that. It's not our business to judge them. We need to be looking at ourselves. Paul says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And we need to know, am I in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If I'm in that relationship, I will know. I will be able to stand up. I will be able to go forward. And these nations were invited to see the destruction of Samaria. And it says in verse 10, for they know not to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They don't understand by experience what it means to be, to do the right, to follow the straight path. And what does that do? They store up, they treasure. They treasure up violence or injustice, cruelty, and robbery, which is again ruin and waste. How many people in this day and age have that going on? In our day and age, people store up, they treasure, they, they treasure seeing evil. They watch evil on these TV shows and movies and entertain evil and then wonder why they have this lust for evil in their heart. And it says they don't know to do right. If we're filling our minds with that kind of garbage, we don't know to do right. In Romans, we're told to... to uh, wash our minds with a renewing of the word and to be able to understand what's right to, to not be conformed to this world and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds all through the scripture the word is to renew us to change us if we're his children if we're in his word we will be renewed we will be thinking his thoughts, understanding his thoughts. God says, my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His thoughts will always be higher than our thoughts, but we can learn his thoughts because he has given us his thoughts in the word. And the more we study the word, the more we will understand God's thoughts. We will never catch up with God's thoughts. He will always be greater than us. He will always be more than us but we can learn to think more like him. We can learn to be more like him. We can learn to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. And this is really important for us because God hates things that we take so lightly. Human beings in our flesh love sin. We love it. We, we take pleasure in it. That's why these movies are so, so popular. That's why the TV shows are so popular. It's why the books are so popular about it. And God says he hates sin. Do we really hate sin? When we commit sin, are we really touched by that fact that we have sinned, that we have committed an act that God hates? And it's so important for us to understand this. God hates sin to the degree that he hates things that we do not even acknowledge as being sin so many times. God says he hates lying lips. He hates people that gossip. He hates these things and we 
don't think of them as being any problem at all. It's like, well, God, I didn't, I didn't really do anything really bad. All I did was talk about this person. I tore them down behind their back. No, no big deal, God. It's, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the problem? And God says, I hate those things. When we tear people down, when, when people are destroyed, you know, words are serious business. You know, we teach our kids, you know, when I remember growing up, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, words hurt. And God understands that words hurt. That's why he tells us we're to edify one another. We're to build one another up because words hurt. There are so many people in this world that have been told bad things all their life. You're worthless. You're never account to anything. And God says, you've torn that person's soul apart, not just... You know, it would have been better to have beat them and broken a bone. That bone heals, but words sometimes never get healed without changing our minds through the Word of God. Really starting to understand who we are in Christ. And we need to be able to consider this. The world comes and lies to us and tells us we're worthless, we'll never amount to anything. And God's stepping back and saying, I love you. I died for you. How much more value do we want to know that God died for us? And if he wants to be our friend, going back to verse 3, can two walk together unless they're agreed? God wants us to be in agreement and walk with him. He is our shepherd. He is our protector. All through the book of Psalms, he says, I am your shield, I am your fortress, I am your defense. We need to be able to understand God loves us. He loves us so much that he wants us to just rest in him, hide in him. We get saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. We get kept by grace. God says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm not going to give you everything you don't deserve. And then he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He fixes us on the right path. He, gets, he provides teachers for us. He provides the word for us. He fills us with the Holy Spirit who then changes us from the inside out to make, him, make us more like him all because of his grace. And all we have to do is rest. Just to sit back and rest in him and not have to strive. One of the problems with so many of the religions that are out there is you have to earn your place with God. The Muslims have to earn their place with God. They hope they've done enough good. The Mormons have to earn their place with God. They hope they've done enough good. You know, they believe in a grace if they've done everything they can, but you never know if you've done everything you can. And for us, it's all by grace. It is a wonderful thing that it's by grace that we're saved. And it's by grace that we're kept. It's by grace that God walks with us. It's by grace that he gives us things to do. And he then strengthens us to do it. And the amazing thing is to watch God work in, in lives by his grace. He calls people to do things when it makes no sense for them to be called. He calls people to do things for him that shouldn't be able to do it. And you watch him give them the strength to do it and to be successful. And we need to just be able to look at him and say, God, thank you for your amazing grace. You know, 
It is so sweet because of his grace. I can't do anything to earn anything. Isaiah tells me that all my righteousness is filthy rags. Even the best things I could do don't mean anything to God. And he says, by my grace, I'm giving you these things. And, you know, it is so wonderful. He gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And he says, this is my child. I'm going to give you everything. And then in verse 10, 11, he says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary even around about the land, he shall bring down your strength from, from you, and your palaces shall be spoiled. Samaria. I'm going to put adversaries all around you. You're going to be surrounded. You're going to have an enemy around you, an oppressor around you, and you shall be spoiled. When we live in a way that we reject God, he puts an adversary around us. And he says, if you won't be protected by me, you won't follow my ways, then we will surround you and make you come to a place where you want to be protected. How many times has God put you in a place where he says, here's your test. Just trust me. Do you trust me? And that is what every one of our tests is all about that we go through. Will we trust him? Whatever it is he's teaching us, whatever it is he's teaching us, he'll put us in a test that says, will you trust me? In the beginning, they're pretty easy tests. You don't know any better. You, don't, you haven't learned a lot. And your test is pretty simple. The more mature you get with him, the harder your tests are because he's saying, you now know. Going back to the first part of this chapter, because you know you are accountable. And we are so much accountable for what he has taught us. And he says, I'm going to test. I'm going to keep testing. We're going to spend our life being tested. Yes, there'll be those respite times when we're just in the green pastures. And then there's going to be those times when we're in a test. And when we're in the middle of the test, we're going to feel like God's not there. Why? Because when, you give a, when you're given a test in school, the teacher is quiet. The teacher doesn't do anything. My answer to the prisoner so often, they go, are you going to give me an answer to the test? I go, no, it's not an answer, quite test about what I know. It's a test about what you know. And when God comes to us and puts us in the middle of a test, he's going, okay, are you ready? Are you going to hide in me? Are you going to trust me? And when we just learn to trust him, it says, okay, God, God, I can't handle this anymore. I want you to do it. I'm going to hide in you. And then other times we get thinking, okay, I got this one. I can handle this test. When do we fall in a test is the day that we forget that we need God to accomplish it. And we get to the place where we say, I can handle this. I can do this. I, I've got it. No problem. I would never fall for that sin. So I'm not going to put a guard there because I don't have to worry about it. And the next thing we know, we've fallen on our face in that sin. This is the problem I think that's happened to so many of these great men of God who's pastors and running great ministries and falling into adultery. And I am absolutely sure none of them ever expected to fall into adultery. They just were so absolutely sure that it would not happen that they didn't put a guard on their heart and the next thing you know, they were caught up in it. Be very careful about what you ever say. If you ever have a place where you say, I'll never fall in this area, be very careful. There are some areas where you're not, you may not be likely to follow, but if you uh, follow, but if you say, I will never fall in that area, you won't put a guard on it. And you need to be very careful about that because you will fall. 
And it usually will fall in your strength because in our weaknesses, we put guards on it. We watch our, our, our weaknesses real well. Verse 12 says, Thus the Lord says the Lord, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs and a piece of the ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out of the dwell in Samaria in the corner of the bed and, and Damascus in, in a couch. Here he's kind of making a statement, you know, again, Amos was a shepherd. He understood when, when you lost a lamb, you had to prove that that lamb had died so you would take part of it away from the animal as you rescued the animal because your job was to rescue the animal. If it was just drug off and taken away, then, then the owner of the sheep would say that you either uh, stole it for yourself or you sold it. And so you would get whatever pieces you could of that lamb that was destroyed by the, an by the wolves or the lions and you would take them back to the owner and say, I'm really sorry, but we lost this lamb. And here God's saying, I am going to take the pieces out of Israel and they're dwelling on the corners of the beds and on the couch or in luxury. And God's saying, you've fallen so far. I'm going to take the remnant out of it, the small pieces, the remnant, to be able to prove that you were destroyed. But also because God can redeem the remnant. God always has a remnant in store. When Elijah said, I'm the only one that has not bended knee, God says, I have several hundred, you know, hundreds of people that have not bent their knees. When God took and he sent Israel into captivity, a remnant was left that followed. When Judah went into captivity, there was a remnant that was left. God always has a remnant of people. In our day, when Christianity is falling away, there will be a remnant. During the end time of tribulation, there will be a remnant that follows God. There's always a remnant following God. Our job is to be in that remnant, be part of the group that is protected by God and following God. And here, God has the ability to rise up a remnant. He called his children out of all the places in the world and has given them their kingdom back. Israel is now a nation again, and the people of Israel are returning. When they left in the Babylonian captivity, they came back, and then they were there for, for a thousand years until they were destroyed again because of their sin. God says, my people. He will protect his people. He will keep his people. And he will always have this remnant to display before people. Verse 13 says, Hear you and testify in the house of Jacob, says the Lord God of hosts. So Israel was to go and testify to Jacob, the southern kingdom. And God, God used that as a point. I have judged the, southern, the northern kingdom Will you continue in your sin, O southern kingdom, you know, O Jacob? And we see this, that God gives so many chances. We watched all the chances he gave to Israel to, to obey him as they would go into sin and fall away and be judged and come back and be judged and come back and be judged and come back. And then he says, okay, I'm going to take you out into captivity. You know, God does that in our lives. He says, here's your truth, live in it. And we go, okay, God, I got it, no problem, I'm no, I can do this, and we fall on our face. 
And he comes back and he lifts us up and says, are you ready to repent? And when we repent, he forgives. Israel, each time it would repent, God would forgive them and re restore them. And they would call upon his name and God would be turned. The book of Josh, uh, Judges has this over and over that people go into sin, they get judged, they, they cry out to God and he rescues them. They fall down into in sin and they get judged and God, they cry out and they, and to God and he rescues them. God does the same thing for us when we just will cry out. When we humble ourselves and we'll cry out, God, I need you. He will come and help us. And he uses that as an example. Verse 14, in that day shall I visit the transgressions of Israel upon him. I will also visit the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. God says, I will go to Bethel and destroy the worship in Bethel. And the, the altar will be, just, will be no longer the, there. And then he says, I will smite the winter house and the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall have no end, says the Lord. And here is God's talking about the complete destruction. He's talking about them living in luxury. They're, these guys are living in luxury. They have their winter homes and their southern homes that, that they would go to. And God says, I'm going to destroy both of them. Everything. And God's destruction in Israel was complete of all the leaders who were destroyed. And then the houses of ivory shall be perished. And this is referring, we believe, mostly to Ahab's house in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 39. It talks about Ahab decorating his house in ivory. And Psalm 47, 8 also refers to the house that's decorated with ivory. And we're really thinking about Ahab. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings of Israel, and he created these elaborate places, and God says, I'm going to destroy everything. All the remnant of the luxury, all the remnant of what was going on will be destroyed. And when God gets to the place where he's had enough, destruction comes. It will be for the lost, they get a long time. You know, the Canaanites had 430 years of hearing the message, starting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They heard the message about God, the one God that they were supposed to follow. The years that they were, the, the Israelites were in Egypt waiting and the sin abounding in Canaan. And then God sent his people and said, destroy them. They have rejected me and gone so far, destroy them. We see at the end of the tribulation period where the world gets so bad that God says, that's it, we'll destroy the wicked. And the days of Noah, men, every imagination of the people's heart was evil and God says, I'm going to destroy the world, but Noah found grace. What made great Noah so much special? We don't know, but he, because he has his problems after the flood. But, you know, God looked down and said, there's at least one person who's doing at least a little toward me. Who knows how much he did? But he listened. He preached for 120 years. God's going to destroy this world. Come into the ark. Protect yourself. And nobody listened. God brought the animals to Noah, and nobody listened. And God, 
Noah's preaching all the way up to the time that it's time to close out the ark and nobody listens. We need to be very careful when we're sharing the gospel because it's not us that share it. It's, it's us that use the words, but it's God who does responsible for the growth. It's God that's responsible for it. We open our mouth and we speak. We open our mouth and share and we watch what God will do. And God will say, I'm going to I'm going to do this. Watch what I'm going to do. We seek the Lord and watch and see how he does things. And it's kind of amazing sometimes how situations will come up and all of a sudden you have plans to do something else and God says, yeah, but it was all me orchestrating this so that you could go forward to this. And we just be, need to be able to stand up and just watch God. Watch God because he is our fortress. We just stay inside him and watch what he's doing outside. How much he's protecting us against the storm. And we put on the armor of Christ and every piece of the armor of Christ is, of God is Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our truth. He is the, the, the gospel message. He is all of these things. And we put on Christ and we're able to stand. And he takes the brunt of the attacks. He takes the brunt of what's going on. And we get the blessing from it. When we go to heaven and our, judge, and our works are judged at the Bema seat of Christ, he's going to throw in all of our works. Everything we do will burn up. Everything that he did through us will be rewarded. We'll get rewarded for what we let God do. And that's a wonderful thing as we look at this. God will bring judgment. He brings complete judgment on those that will not listen. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to read your word and to look at your word. We ask you to help us to follow it and do what you would have us to do in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.